The future of augmented reality, of course, moves away from using your hands to hold up a portal and just puts the portal directly on our on our eyes and then we can look out in the world and, and then has the advantage of now we're hands-free and we can use our hands to interact with the world. Whereas right now in AR, we either interact through touching the screen or we hold up the screen and reach out, you know, and, and track one-handed uh, activities. So if we can free up our hands, of course, we're happier. Hello, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, everybody, a place to talk about software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content, joined by my friend, Paul Ford of Postlight. Hi, Paul. Oh, my goodness. Are we doing this again? That's great. Good for us. Good for us. Paul, we were on a podcast recently with the great Jen Schiffer, and she was mentioning there's a lot of activity around WebXR. And she thinks that a lot of this is coming from people's increasing interest in augmented and virtual reality. And you and I were kind of saying, like, eh, we're not seeing it, like, not happening. She brought up an interesting example, which was trying on some lipstick through the browser, oh, just right. like seeing the that's color. Right. So we have uh, two great guests with us today, hopefully to talk about, yeah, what's happening with AR programming, what that's like, how people can get involved. We have Kelly Cho and Richard Bailey from Niantic Labs. Welcome. Yay, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wait, first of all, what is XR? What's the X? I'm guessing the R is reality. The R is reality. XR, X went through a, a lot of iterations and a lot of explanations, so it's going to change based on who you ask. It started at one point, it was a star, <laughs> an asterisk as a wild card, okay. but then it became X as an extended and so on and so forth. So XR, we generally speak who as the umbrella of technologies that include AR, VR, and MR. Part of the motivation was to get away from exclusively talking about the technology and focus a little bit more in our articles about the human side of the equation. And say every article a few years ago was every other sentence was AR, VR, MR, AR, VR, MR. And it was largely distracting from, well, humans have to consume these experiences and, and enjoy them and so on and so forth. And so, Kelly, for folks who don't know, what is Niantic Labs and what is it that, that you do there? So I am a engineer on the ARDK Unity team. Um, the ARDK Lightship is Niantic's platform for you know, AR development. And then the Unity team specifically is sort of the bridge between the research teams at Niantic and our, the ARDK customers. So I work mainly on the API and, and making sure that you know, all the cool things that the research team does is actually usable in a production environment. So yeah, for, for people who don't know, what are some of the things that Niantic makes in-house? And then yeah, to I guess the degree that you can talk about clients, you know, how do third parties use some of what you've built uh, to create their own experiences? So we currently have uh, 10, uh, 10 games in production. We've you've seen announcements for uh, Pikeman-oriented game, uh, Heavy Metal, Catan. We've also seen announcements for a reference platform that we're working on with Qualcomm for a uh, headset device. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the most recent announcement around uh, Lightship uh, ARDK for the development kit. Gotcha. Of course, the most popular game is, uh, is Pokemon Go. Always and forever. <laughs> if I wanted to use these technologies, where would I start? What would I do? Not as a gamer, but as a programmer. The, the very first step would be to register to be part of the beta program. 
Niantic Lightship. I'm typing it in right now. I'm doing this as we go along. Okay. Niantic.dev. I love a yes. good .dev URL. Yes. And okay. then once you are approved to be part of that beta, you'll receive you know, an account information and you can download ARDK as well as the examples um, and documentation and so on. You know, ARDK being Lightship Augmented Reality Development Kit. And then, yeah, we have a getting started project. Um, obviously, I'm a little bit biased because you know, I work with ARDK every day, but I'm confident that anyone even who has just a slight level of experience in Unity can get up and running with ARDK within an afternoon. Give me a sense of the the sort of concepts and skills. Like, obviously, it's good if I understand a little bit about programming. Should I know about, like, mapping? Should I know about geography? Should I know about latitude and longitude? Like, what are the core, or is it more pure geometry? Like, what are the core concepts of this world that that people should be interested in? In Well, in, in terms of what people might assume they need to know in order to, to build an AR app or with ARDK is... Mainly three things, right? You know, Unity coding, specifically C sharp coding, because that's what Unity uses. And then three is, yeah, like what you mentioned, some computer vision background, a knowledge of what exactly is mapping and how does AR work. I think of all those things, you just need a basic understanding of Unity and you know, an, an interest in building AR apps. You know, we've made a substantial effort in ARDK to provide something that not only provides access to the exciting new technology that Niantic is working on, but also, you know, a high level layer that makes using and accessing that tech really quick and simple. And so are there certain like devices and cluster of, you know, sensors that I need in order for AR to work? Like uh, when I go to the, the website, I see somebody rolling dice, you know, in a 3D environment and they're they're bouncing off the the world around them. You know, you can add clouds or weather, you know, to something. You can uh, do mapping of, you know, your home and see what it'd be like to add extra furniture. So when you're using this, do people need to know, okay, I need a, a mobile device. It has to have a camera and an IMU and like various things. Or can this work almost like in a dev environment on my, you know, home PC? And then later I can like push that out to devices that need certain components. So in order to run an actual AR experience, you do need an AR-capable device. I mean, currently that's limited to AR-capable mobile devices, headsets being in the future, potentially. But also, you know, it doesn't have to be the fanciest or latest mobile device. You know, the great thing about the, like the depth and, and meshing technology that Niantic has developed is that it can it can function off a camera image. It doesn't need you know, fancy LiDAR direct detectors or anything like that. What is meshing? So meshing is the process by which we detect edges and features and corners out in the world and then line them up from multiple camera angles to figure out what their 3D position is. So then we create a whole bunch of little triangles that represent the approximate shape of the world that we see. So I'm holding my camera up. And I'm turning the world into polygons, and then I can put things on top of those polygons. Right. You can get physics uh, collisions and things bouncing off of them. And we can also do special lighting effects based on the meshes, et cetera. All right. So that's when I am holding my phone up and looking, that's what I'm doing. The computer is meshing, and then I'm able to, to sort of manipulate reality that way. 
what applications? I mean, we know Pokemon Go, like we know the games. Like, what other applications are you seeing that's that are exciting for AR? I mean, we've seen uh, Amazon starting to uh, to put augmented products in there, so you can see furniture placed in your house. Wayfair and uh, IKEA have been doing the same thing. Of course, we've seen lots of tape measure apps uh, <laughs> and such. Yeah. Of course, we're trying to enable a whole bunch of scenarios by making the technology a lot more accessible to uh, the typical developer. Where do you see this finding a niche? I mean, fast forward five years, who should be learning this uh, in our cohort of developers? I mean, besides everyone, right? Like, uh, I know there's that answer. Uh, <laughs> you, you cut my off. Yeah, yeah. Off well, like, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, um, I'm a developer. I know a little JavaScript. I do some web stuff. I, you know, and, and suddenly the boss comes to me and says, what do you think about AR? Like, obviously I can go get the SDK, but like what applications do you think are exciting outside of? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I think they'll fit in two categories. I think the category we've seen a lot of is the gimmicks. Sure. You do it just because it's cool and cute and interesting. And then there's the category where it has a, an actual utility or, or purpose. It gives you an advantage. That second category is going to be places where the, the content that you're working with will be distinctly better if you can spatialize it into your physical world. And that's why we're seeing it pop up a lot with, with furniture and so on and so forth, because it's an obvious you know, play. You know, furniture, carpet, paint are you know, easy, clear, and obvious today. But then any other application where, um, where you, need, you need data in a particular location, you know, rather than off at a computer terminal, you need it at the place where you're looking at it. I mean, you can imagine the temperature of a swimming pool. Right. Do you want to go back into the pump room to know the temperature of the swimming pool or just want to look at the swimming pool and, and, and see the temperature there and so on and so forth. So the data will increasingly move away from these devices and be available wherever it's most appropriate to have the, the data and content and experiences in our world. Are you thinking about interfaces? I mean, obviously Niantic has a very deep relationship with Google. So like Google Glass or does that factor a lot into your thinking, the kind of augmented reality at an eyeglass level, or are you mostly focused on mobile? I mean, mobile is one that's very accessible today, and Niantic's history is built around uh, building real things that real people can use today, right. and that's what we have, millions of players. And so that's, uh, of course, our, our primary focus, because that's where we can ship games today and we can uh, enable developers today. But the future of augmented reality, of course, moves away from using your hands to hold up a portal and just puts the portal directly on our on our eyes and then we can look out in the world and, and then has the advantage of now we're hands-free and we can use our hands to interact with the world. Whereas right now in AR, we either interact through touching the screen or we hold up the screen and reach out, you know, and, and track one-handed uh, activities. Right. So if we can free up our hands, of course, we're happier. Would that be an advantage in terms of, yeah, sort of the fidelity of it, I know, you know, with VR, I've read about this, having it on, on somebody's face and in front of their eyes and kind of like aligned with the way they see the world. Would that be interesting in terms of how you can create experiences? Yeah, it's uh, it becomes in some ways much easier all right, for the user and for the developer, because when you have a, a screen up in front of your face, it acts as a keyhole in any interaction that you do through the spatial world, you're doing through that tiny keyhole that's out here at a distance. So your degrees of, of interaction are now very small until you move the keyhole around like a flashlight, right? And try to find the next thing to interact with. When it's up here, it's like you're putting your eye right up to the keyhole mm. and now you have a huge range of, of viewing and now your, your arms can move in front of you and interact with things in that space very freely. 
And so I guess, Kelly, before you know, you got into AR, were you working in software in another field? Like, is there a field that tends to lead people here, whether they're in game development or they're doing Unity? What's a pathway that people often end, end up on and they find themselves doing AR stuff? I was actually working at a VR startup. <laughs> so doing, uh, <laughs> doing tool development at a VR animation studio. And mm. that was my first job out of university. So I've always sort of been in the AR VR space. Yeah, if anyone's interested in becoming an AR or VR engineer, the field is is early. It's like still in its you know nascent stages enough that you don't need some to be someone with ten years of experience in AR VR XR because pretty much no one has ten years experience in AR VR XR. I think if you're excited about the field, if you have an interest in it and you're open to to learning you know maybe you like prototyping or you know game development then there's so many opportunities to to jump into the field i think yeah you know one of the things that that interested us in this was the idea that it's kind of growing in the background and we're not seeing it i had come across an article while i was researching for this podcast from harvard business review just saying that the pandemic had really been an accelerant for ar experiences for people to try before they buy and try things on from home you were mentioning i guess yeah that like typically you want this to be for a, a mobile device and then you know the headset is where we want to get to but a lot of people it sounds like you know with jen schiffer or try before you buy are, are doing it with the webcam on their computer so are there particular challenges that you face there? And is that something that you think through? Like, how do you make that a good experience, even though you're using a device and maybe a setup that isn't ideal? Definitely working through the mobile phone creates a, creates a challenge. More recent experiences have been with, uh, with headsets. So working through the phone, it has a challenge that you're kind of interacting through this abstraction. You're touching the screen in order to interact with something in the spatial domain. And then you know, really, it just takes iteration. You got to try things out, think about what the physical world action that you're trying to perform is, mm. and then work through what's the abstraction on the phone with touch and movement combination that you want the user to do to try to achieve that that physical uh, interaction. So, like, if you want to have the interaction of swinging a baseball bat, you know, how through touch and phone might you create that interaction while the user can still look at the screen and see what they're they're interacting with. How in the world does one develop good 3D object creation skills? Every time I've opened up Blender, I give up 15 minutes later. And it, as I'm looking through the demos and I look at this world, I mean, the ability to make a little guy with funny ears who's like, hi, welcome, is critical to this world, right? You have to be able to do it. That to me feels like a big a big hurdle to get over is to actually create an environment and objects that people will engage with. Yeah, at Niantic, I'm, we are very lucky to work with a team of very talented artists and technical artists who can handle that side of it for us. I've seen some the art, 3D artists and I actually stood over their shoulder and watched them for an hour just because the whole process was it was fascinating to me. It's, a, it's an amazing skill. All right, so that is, that's very comforting. So now we know that you know there's there's at least two jobs in the industry that's that's good right paul they're not hiring for a full stack xr experience uh, not yet ben, but you know that's designer. coming it's coming you know that's coming we'd like the full stack you need to be able to make a movie and you need to be able to uh, program the interactions with with ar i mean really when i when i think about this what i think about is 
At some level, I, I believe that we, we sort of do need to head towards a culture of greater maintainability because currently we have a very disposable, you know, we're people buy new cars and they buy new things all the time. And I always think about this technology as a wonderful layer to learn how to fix and repair things. And I'm wondering if that's just a fantasy I have, or you think that there is things that are happening along those lines? Like, you know, is is this a tool for fixing your own car engine or, or what kind of layers exist like that? There's a, a couple aspects of that that I uh, see as being very realistic. One, we've seen a transition in the past few years from uh, owner's manuals essentially not being used anymore, like getting started, guys. Right, right, Everything's yeah. transitioned over to YouTube. And you, it's like, oh, here's the owner's manual, but let me just, just jump on YouTube and search for it and watch some two-minute video on how to set the thing up. And then likewise, with, with the augmentation technology, you can now have the ability to have content where you look at the device and then the step-by-step instructions show up floating around the device. And this is uh, hugely beneficial because like, we've all assembled some piece of IKEA furniture and, <laughs> and found some error in the diagram, right? And some translational uh, error. And you put the wrong leg on at the wrong time yep. and then you have to undo yep. or, or the diagram is also can be wrong, right? Because it's been translated from 3D to 2D and then it's interpreted by you or us. You look at the 2D and you try to translate it back to 3D and you get two layers of transitional with augmentation, right? You can look at it in 3D and you can see augmentations in 3D and you see exactly what direction the pin is going. And so when you pick it up, move it around and you can say, oh, exactly these holes. And you hold up a screw and it'll label the screw for you and say, oh, this is a screw that you're looking at. I just want to point out that Richard said Ikea can be wrong. So, you know, when the Ikea Ikea police (laughs) hear this podcast. I'm I'm a world-class Ikea fanboy, so I can definitely (laughs) say Ikea Ikea can make mistakes. (laughs) There's an app that I really love. It's called Seek, and it lets you identify like plants and animals. But it uses, you know, computer vision, and you know, people submit their pictures. So often you have to like rotate it around the mushroom or the bug. You know, give it like a a bit more sort of like depth and angles for it to get it. And I was thinking about this the other day because I recently moved from the city to the country, and now I have to repair all this machinery, and I don't have a clue how to do it. But what you were just saying makes a lot of sense. If I could take the hood off the lawnmower and look at it, it was showing me what to do. But even more, especially like you're saying with IKEA, what not to do, you know, like operation or something like don't stick, you know, this is, you're going to break it and you won't be able to go back. That's what I could really use. Is like a, That's, you know, disassembly, right? Yeah. Like, cause every IKEA furniture survives that maybe the first move and the second move, you're back to buying a whole bunch of other particle board. <laughs> All right, so this is good. I like this. We're going to take on IKEA with augmented reality. Excellent. What what other industries can we can we disrupt? Come on, let's get out there. Let's 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 mess with things. Yeah, I was I was just going to say there's there's one where you know we we have a fairly disposable inter, you know industry around kind of decorating and refreshing decorations in our homes and workplaces and so on and so forth. And so in this kind of environment, when eventually when we have the eyewear that we have on, you can decorate your home with augmented things and they don't have to be static anymore. And they also don't have to be expensive, right? If you put a big screen on the wall, you know, that's, that's hundreds of dollars, uh, or thousands of dollars that you're spending. Right. But if you have glasses on, you can put as many screens on as you put on the walls you want to. Yeah, what is the Venn diagram? The, the person who goes all out with the Christmas lights and yard decorations really cares about the environment and is going to is going to AR program their own uh, you know Christmas decorations for when everybody comes over with the glasses I like this. Oh, I don't know. I might be in that Venn diagram. I mean to me I, I think this is interesting because what you're what you're saying is that like 
you know, there's a vast amount of kind of energy consumption and production that happens to decorate our homes or to power them or to give us images through our big screens. And instead, that would be a localized experience, something that kind of comes out of the CPU in your pocket or even on your eyeglasses. And that you'd have this kind of, the world would be a little bit ad hoc, but also maybe, you know, you come into my house, you're going to see what I want on the walls versus you know what you want. I can finally put up my NFTs and it'll say underneath how much how much ETH I spent on it. So I justify all of that. Oof, and, oof. and it's kind of you get uh, kind of uh, democratized on-demand pixels, right? We're all paying for the pixels that we reach rendering, but they're only rendering the pixels that you happen to be looking at. As soon as you turn your head, you know, where the TV, you turn your head and you still pay for that TV. The pixels are paid for that are on the wall, but you're not looking at them anymore. With glasses, like as soon as you look at it, the pixels are there, you look away and the pixels aren't there anymore. Interesting, so we may have the experience of lots of people sitting somewhere staring at a blank wall laughing. I've already had that experience yeah. <laughs> a few times. It's oh, pretty yeah. strange when you, when you walk in. And, and I think with that, you touched on one of the kind of fundamental difference between AR and, and MR in that when, when you walk in a room and some people are doing AR together, they're still together and they're doing AR, right? And then you walk in the room, they see you walk in the room. If they're doing VR and you walk in the room, they don't know you've walked in the room, right? And so, so now to some degree, psychologically, they're vulnerable because if people can walk in and out of the room while they've got this VR on and they can't see the room around them, then they don't really know what's going on in the room anymore. So AR can become a lot more approachable because you're not potentially blindfolded kind of in the room, you still have spatial awareness of what's in the room around you. Interesting. So just that that totally immersive aspect of VR, which is, it does, it pulls you out of the world. Even if you're in a shared sort of space with others, it's not the same as something being projected onto the, the actual space that you're in. Now that we've identified a use case, which is I would like to watch TV on the wall, even through my mobile phone. I want us all to have a shared TV. So a video box needs to be projected on one wall in my home. I could name that wall. So I've come to you with this use case, Niantic team, and I want you to help me actually program this. So I'll go get the SDK. Now what do I need to do? This is actually pretty simple. <laughs> so great. yeah, yeah. If, I don't know if you've ever tried the multiplayer buddy feature in Pokemon Go. Uh, my children have. Yes, absolutely. My <laughs> yeah. children have. Um, yes, yes. I, I do know what that is. Okay, so you're kind of all looking at the same Bulbasaur. Yeah, so because, you know, in this situation, all of you are in the same environment, in the same area, the first step would be to, you know, join a AR networking session, an AR multiplayer session all together. And it sort of it sort of has a box it knows by lat long where we are, GPS, and it's sort of like, hey, they're there. Uh, right now the AR multiplayer doesn't use GPS. You know, you join together using a QR code or a session identifier. Oh, I see. Like okay. So so we tell it we're all together. Yeah. And then okay. once you're all in the same session, you will scan your environment to you know pick up feature points. And then ARDK will collect the data from all of your devices and locate your device relative to your friend's device. So now everyone has the same frame of reference and you can place 
your virtual TV at, you know, coordinates XYZ in your shared world and everyone will see it in the same place. Interesting. So it's an ad hoc network of things sort of knowing where other things are as opposed to some global positioning system. Yes. We're all projecting at the same wall and, and computer says, yeah, I'm going to put that rectangle there. That's cool. Uh, and we all see the rectangle slightly at different angles as a result. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I would have thought that, you know, this was more of an eye in the sky kind of thing. And it was like, okay, you are, you know, one arc millisecond away from, from this person. And, you know, we're going to, I don't know, it shows you how little I know about anything, including geo. That has to do with the technology roadmap, the, the kinds of things we want to enable. The first layer of things we want to enable is, is basically enabling these developers to create the specific experiences they want. Uh, while we uh, give them complete control around things like privacy and, and so on and so forth. So right now in this first layer experience, you have total control over who's going to join you in their experience. You know, we have Pokemon Go and we have these GoFest events, uh, and then we have other games building similar concepts. And so we, we are heading towards these, you know, eventually thousands of people in a park playing Pokemon, you know, together, uh, so on and so forth. So we, that is a progression that we're, that we're enabling. In that case, this, they would sort of register with the system rather than kind of with each other. Right. And the users would be opting into that experience. Where does my data go? Is it, in your world, is it still hosted by Niantic? Am I building my own cloud service with my own 3D assets, you know, on AWS? Like, how do you platformize this? What we enable is, is going to be some of both. Um, basically, we're going to put options on the table. Not all game development studios have cloud engineers sure. that are, are going to be able to, to build one of these things from ground up. So we're looking at enabling a combination of these things on our roadmap so that smaller studios can create these multiplayer AR experiences without having the deep expertise in you know, cloud synchronization, uh, real-time data, so on and so forth. Is this also a platform business for you? Like, it, you know, people can check it out, but right, if somebody's building an experience, they get to a certain scale and then, you know, Niantic would be like a cloud service provider of sorts? In, in some cases, we are already for the first-party uh, games that we've already shipped. Gotcha. Of course, they all have cloud black backends. So you can imagine a, a, a unif you know, unified roadmap you know, in the future. Right now, we have Lightship, and we're focusing on, on Lightship ARDK. Uh, Lightship will have you know, other pieces that release over time as well. And so we can imagine futures where the, the most valuable pieces to, to other game companies start to become enabled and, and available. Let me ask the most important question from the enterprise software point of view. What are my analytics? What kind of dashboard can I get if I build one of these experiences? <laughs> or what are the data points that people are most interested in? From the gaming side, I haven't seen the, the data on that yet. I mean, beyond the reliability statistics, mm -hmm. there's, you know, obvious things around if you have different points of interest in your game that are activated, mm -hmm. whether they be gyms or portals or so on or so forth, they you might want to know how many, how busy each of those are for your games. There are other avenues if we, uh, as we kind of start to enable like advertising and, and promoting a business through your game. Um, you want the analytics about that, of course, because that's how you get, might be how you get paid, for instance. So there's a, a plenty of data, you know, around that as well. It's an emerging space, analytics dashboards for XR experiences. There you go. Everyone <laughs> just told you. Um, I mean, and in a funny way, I mean, Pokemon Go is a dashboard. Right? Like you, you hold it up and you, you see the Pokemon that you have captured. All right, great. I have no further questions.
All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. It is that time of the episode. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge. Today, it goes to Kareem for answering the question, check if values exist in array object JavaScript or Angular. So thank you to Kareem. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper, and you can always email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. Paul, who are you? Where can people find you? Thank you so much. I am Paul Ford, co-founder of Postlate, a growing software development firm and digital strategy firm. Check us out at postlate.com. Apply to work there. It's all great. Kelly? I am Kelly from the ARDK Unity team at Niantic. If you are interested in developing an AR app, check out our Lightship platform. <laughs> and also, if you're interested in working at Niantic, we are hiring. And so I'm Richard Bailey. I'm a, a senior director for AR experiences at Niantic. We're definitely interested in uh, hiring great, great talent and also getting game developers to come try out our uh, Lightship ARDK platform at Niantic.dev. So come sign up. Thank you very much.